Each day we learn of COVID-19, increasing the numbers of those contracting, hospitalized, or passing on. Each day we learn of more persons being unemployed, businesses shutting down, or working from home. Each day we're forced even more out of our comfortable routines and required to shape new norms, even temporarily. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. The entire complex scenario is a surreal event that challenges even those with positive perspectives and strong mental health agility. Maintaining good emotional and mental health is a challenge, touching more persons than the virus itself. On this edition, we host the COVID-19 Mental Health Support Group, so to speak, with Steve Fisher, a licensed professional counselor with the Mental Health Center of Denver. Everybody handles crises differently. Uh, there's no one way to do it. I, I guess people really, with everything that's going on, they have to look at themselves and see how they handle stuff and then find ways to to keep themselves mentally and emotionally healthy while it's going on. Absolutely. I think that's true, and I think that's particularly true in this situation because we our kind of world as we've known it has changed so dramatically that we're forced into both isolation, you know, in one sense uh, from a lot of our typical life, and then in another sense, in some cases, we have too much family time or we have, you know, like the people that we love the most, we're actually super close to them um, without, you know, having our normal routines. And in other cases, uh, we're isolated from the support networks that we have. So, yeah, everybody is going through that to your original point. Uh, in their own unique way. Well, what, one of the primary things people worry about is not only their own health now, but the health of loved ones, and some of them stress out because they can't help the loved ones. How would you recommend they handle that? Yeah, I agree that, that a lot of times what gives us a sense of meaning and purpose and connection um, is being there for our loved ones. And so since we can't do that in some cases now or in many cases now, in direct contact, we have to we have to utilize technology to do it virtually. And so, unfortunately, we're in an era where there is some nice technology out there that allows yeah. us to either FaceTime or use Teams, Microsoft Teams, or Skype or whatever, and maintain that connection. So, a key thing is in this social distancing era, we don't want to we we definitely need to physically distance, but we mm-hmm. don't want to socially isolates. We have to keep that connection going during this time. And that's a kind of a nice mental health distinction or nuance to social distancing is yeah. we don't want to transfer the virus, but we, we definitely don't want to isolate. And so people really, they, they need to make a conscious effort to reach out and stay connected, especially if they're uh, living alone, because I know uh, some of the older older people, boomers are older. Well, we are. Uh, about 40% of them are single and living alone, and so there's a high degree of isolation here in Denver. Yeah, so we have to do as much as we can to stay connected to those folks, and they, in turn, also have to do everything they can to to connect to their social network. And, and then they also have to do things to kind of tolerate their distress. So, in other words, if I'm regardless of who I am and what level of social distancing I'm experiencing or physical distancing, I also have to realize that part of my well-being is going to be uh, based on how well do I handle my, you know, kind of fears, anxieties, maybe mm-hmm. depression. Um, what kind of skills do have I learned over time to help me do that? And then, you know, medications, of course, so stay consistent on medications 
um, you know, sleep, hygiene, um, you know, on, and we can get into more details on those things. But, yeah, so I, I not only want to stay as connected as I can using technology, but I also have to figure out how can I manage my own distress skillfully and effectively. And in managing that as well, you're recommending probably uh, uh, taking breaks from seeing all the newscasts and the and the press conferences over and over and over. There's one gentleman that we spoke with in another interview. Uh, he said in his family that they uh, limit themselves to 30 minutes a day of news, period, to make sure they take some time to unwind as well. Yes, 100%. So we would definitely we agree that you want to limit the time that you watch the news and you want to make sure that news alerts on your phone are either turned off or you somehow can just swipe them away and not pay attention to them. And then you want to spend more time maybe watching something that's going to create a different emotion, like watch a comedy or, or do something that's going to distract your mind by Sudoku or a crossword puzzle or do something with the family that you're staying, family members that you're staying home with. Um, do something with them that, you know, again, engages your mind in something other than just um, this kind of kind of perseverating or this ruminating about the state of our pandemic. Sometimes when these things go on, especially when we're getting information from officials and then you get conflicting information, is this, this also going to test our ability to give trust to those we have elected or those uh, governmental officials who are working for us as well. And if that trust breaks down, how do we rebuild it again? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and you do hear that, speaking of nooses, between certain agencies, professional agencies, uh, and polit politicians and, and leaders and so on. So, yeah, so I think there is going to have to be a period where we built, uh, where we rebuild trust. One of the one of the mental health concepts that we use a lot is called check the facts. And check mm -hmm. the facts just simply means I might have an emotional reaction to something and it might take me down a road of anxiety or depression or fear. And one of the ways that we can that we can kind of prevent that runaway emotion that's distressing is we can check the facts. We can go to the CDC website, for example, or the World Health Organization website, the, what they're saying there, and then kind of you know, kind of compare and contrast that, with, if you will, with what maybe we heard on TV that was really fear-producing or anxiety-producing. So, so that's something that we really encourage people to do: stay informed, but do it in a very advised way and a very limited way, so you're not overwhelmed with it. If you, as a counselor, are you seeing an increased use of self-medications like alcohol, tobacco use going on? Is this thing continues to? Uh, to, uh, to increase how much time we're away from our normal routine? We're seeing a couple things. People that are coming into our clinics virtually, we, we're fortunately able to do telehealth and some, some telephonic, so some over the phone, but a lot of it via video conferencing, which is great. And what we're seeing is people in various stages of grief and loss, so they're grieving and mourning a lot, and then we are seeing an up or an increase in people using substances to try to cope with this distress. And so, of course, we encourage people to limit slash eliminate, you know, substances mm -hmm. as much as possible um, and to, um, you know, again, not just kind of isolate and use substances as a way to cope. So those two a lot of times will go hand in hand. I'll increase my substance use and I'll decrease my connection with the social supports in my life 
that are actually interested in my well-being. So if I'm if I'm recovering and I'm maintaining that sobriety, and now I'm in this place where I can't go to meetings, I can't connect to people that are supportive of me, I might wind up kind of relapsing and going the opposite direction of what I want to go. You were speaking of loss. Um, how do friends and family have to cope with someone who may have been lost through COVID-19 and we can't have the usual ritual dramas of funerals and graveside ceremonies and that kind of thing. Do they just wait on it to end and then uh, go see the family or something later? How do they cope with that kind of thing? Yeah, I think our society is still trying to figure that out. I know that I've had a few friends that have lost loved ones in, uh, in this last six weeks since we've been in this kind of stay-at-home situation. And they are doing obituaries, you know, certainly online like they normally would. And then they're postponing, in many cases, the actual in-person memorial services. So I think that's important to still try to honor that person and memorialize them through online techniques or virtual techniques. And then also to have a time down the road that you can say, hey, we're still planning to hold, um, you know, it's going to be when this all settles down and we're allowed to do it. So I think there's that piece to it. And then I think there's the own, your own attend to yourself when it comes to your own grief and loss. As important, uh, parents, parents who have to support children. And uh, teenage children on one hand, do parents need to monitor them being online for these longer periods of time? And then trying to translate all of this for uh, a, a younger kid uh, as to some things they can't do or, or or they want to do. How does a parent uh, have to manage their kids through a situation like this? Yeah, there's all kinds of extra layers of stress because of that, because the parents, a lot of times, if they're fortunate enough to work from home, they're working from home, and then their son or daughters are doing distance learning from home. Hopefully, they're able to do that. They have the technology and uh, the wherewithal to do that. And so that is definitely a challenge to how do you balance all of that? How do you actually function as a teacher, if you will, of your kiddos while also working, while also dealing with the stress and fear of how bad is this in the future? How are we going to go back to normal? When are we going to go back to normal? So I think that that's something that parents really, really have to be very interested. Do we have the TV on and what hours do we have it on or half of an hour? So definitely a balancing act there, working together as partners, if at all possible, and um, limiting, like we said, that time online and being very consistent with that. And then instead do things like exercise, walk. And we see a lot of people out walking, but still yeah. using the precautions of wearing face masks and um, doing, you know, doing board games or cooking together or reading, you know, reading books and, hey, let's, let's spend some time reading, etc. So, So staying engaged with each other, engaged in things that are um, what we would call protective factors that give us a sense uh-huh. of hope and a sense of purpose and meaning while also not, um, you know, not misrepresenting that difficult situation. It's got to be a particular challenge for um, single parents. Uh, you know, with both parents, at least you got some help there. But for a single parent, they really have got to be on it, managing both themselves and those kids at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And and even yeah, even another layer or two of complexity there is. Let's say we don't have the technology to work from home, or maybe I was laid off or furloughed, 
um, because my job is not uh, one that I can work remotely. So now I'm dealing with the financial stress and strain to help my son or daughter be focused on their school that they were maybe fortunate enough to continue to do. And now that's spilling over into my role as a parent. So I think those are, yeah, there's all kinds of layers there that we have. And so then in that case, we really want people in that case to reach out to their natural supports and say, hey, whether that's a faith community, whether that's a professional counselor, whether that's um, yeah, as you said, it, it, there, there are layers and layers and layers. Are there things that they can still do even remotely or if they happen to caregive at the same time that can help protect their families, let's say make sure that they know what their medications are and they have them, or monitoring medical supplies, stuff like this that they could, could still possibly do to help uh, not only extended family members, but if they're doing some caregiving in the house as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think of the phrase that comes to mind there is hierarchical needs. So we need to make sure that our basic needs are being met first. And there are, there are so many programs. I'm so impressed with our with our communities. There are so many programs where if we need food boxes, if we need medications delivered, if we need uh, other types of support, there are different organizations in our community that are helping out. And then, of course, like we said, family and friends doing that. But we want to do the hierarchical needs first, like our um, you know basic needs, and then our physical health. We want to make sure we're attending to our physical health, and and then again basic needs. And then on top of that, then we can start looking at well, what about my anxiety or my depression, or I'm so upset right now that I used to practice mindfulness exercises, but those went by the wayside, you know, six weeks ago, and now I'm just living in this space of ruminating all the time, and I just am starting to kind of, um, you know, go, you know, kind of stir-crazy and not be very effective in my parenting role or in my role of trying to pull myself out of this depression or this anxiety and try to figure out what's my strategy moving forward. And so, so yeah, absolutely you want to attend to all those needs and draw upon the resources, um, both professional and community-based and family-friend-based that can support you in that. How about those people who have been doing some self-quarantine and having to be quarantined? Um, when they come out of that quarantine, uh, are they going to have things that they're going to be feeling as well? Are they going to feel guilty that they had this in the house around other family members? Are they going to have a fear that they may have spread it to somebody else or, or something like that or uh, or sadness for uh, contracting it in the first place that, that they have to deal with? Absolutely. Guilt is going to be a part of this whole process for us, both collectively and individually, and that's part of grief and loss. Is that, and so could I have done something different? Was this preventable in any way that um, so-and-so, you know, got got was diagnosed or was positive with this virus, and did I contribute in any way to that? So... 100% people are going to have to deal with that, and they're going to have to work through that guilt and that what, another phrase we use called bargaining, which is what if and if only could I have done this different? Could that yeah. have you know could that have been handled differently so that um, you know uncle <laughs> our uncle didn't you know test positive for the illness? Should we have mm -hmm. canceled that birthday party? Should we have not gone over and delivered them? Are all of us going to have a, a degree of PTSD after this thing winds itself down that we're reflecting back or just the 
uh, what is it? It's just being being happy that we came through it. Uh, there's going to be some PTSD attached to this uh, situation now. Yeah, I think I think there will be in varying degrees. So, in other words, some people will be so impacted by this illness, maybe first responders, maybe our frontline medical staff, because yeah. of the anxiety of having to go in every single day and put themselves at risk. Uh, perhaps they would be more vulnerable to meeting criteria for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, and certainly other family members who had someone who contracted the illness and died, and they had to go through the, you know, that horrible experience of watching them deteriorate and pass away. So, yeah, so yeah. some people definitely will have that. Others of us, let's say, will have less of those symptoms that we wouldn't, quote, quote unquote, meet the criteria for PTSD, but we're going to have some of those symptoms. Um, that are going to be uh, with us, and we're going to have to process through them. We're going to have to manage them effectively, whether that's, you know, um, kind of maybe bad dreams that's impacting my sleep or, um, again, like you said, I feel guilty all the time um, and so on. So things that will be disruptive to our life in varying degrees as we come out of this quarantine and this kind of societal experience that we've all been through. And, and people probably should think about taking their time to, uh, to to unravel these things. It's not going to be quick. Because I could see persons who have lost a job now saying, oh, my gosh, am I going to lose a job again? And with a lot of people, it has exposed vulnerabilities that maybe we've been knowing about and put off for some time and didn't do anything about. And now we may have to face those things. So this is going to be a process then of coming out, and hopefully we can get something done in case this stuff comes back again. Absolutely. And, I, again, I think, well, from you're talking at both the physical level and the practical day-to-day level, and you're also talking, I think, at the mental health, emotional level. And, and that, in, in, in the middle of all that is our social relationships and our work and our finances and our spirituality and uh, our community, like, like you said, are, are we going to shake hands again in the future? <laughs> are we just going to say hi from a distance? And, and what's that feel like? And can I adapt to this new world that we're going to live in? And how is this going to impact my, again, yeah, like we said, um, a basic need is financial. And are, am I going to be able to pay my bills? Am I going to be able to get back into the industry that I was once in? Or is that industry going to change because our world is now a different place? And how am I going to deal with that? on all those levels of um, every dimension of my life. And, again, the other the underlying thing here is, is I want to attend to my well-being. I'm always paying attention to, hey, how am I doing in my overall well-being and how is all that we're going through deteriorating my yeah. I'm building on now the stress that I had before this happened that I didn't even realize was a big issue for me, but now it's kind of tipping me in a direction that's more concerning. So, so one of the things you're saying there, I'm hearing others say the same thing. Everybody says, oh, we'll come, come out of this and we'll go back the way it used to be. It ain't going to be the way it used to be. February 2020, uh, what we ever were doing then, something, little things, big things, medium things, it's not going to be the same, and we got to get ready for that. Absolutely, and that's what we, again, what we would call kind of in grief and loss kind of the terminology is our assumptive world. The things that we used to assume would happen and would be there the next day and the next day and the next day, those things have changed. And now I have to grieve and mourn and adapt to a new world 
that is not what I have assumed I would have you to be doing now in March and April and May, like you're saying, um, and, and, and ongoing. And so how do I adapt to that new world? Both how do we adapt to it as a community and, again, all of our sub-communities? Again, like I said, faith community, our hobby community, people with hobbies that we share uh, interest in, our families, and so on. How do we readjust to this new world, and how do we take care of ourselves in that process, and how do we take care of each other in that process? And can we do that in a compassionate way? Can we do that in a very mindful and intentional way, or do things start to really slip? And I start to go downhill, and everybody else is so preoccupied with their own process that they, they, they're not attentive to me, and I start to, you know, become suicidal. I start to relapse on substances, and now I'm in a really, really dark place. And I, and I, and I don't know what to do. Basically, this is something that people are not going to be able to run away from, because even if we want to shut it out of our minds that we even went through it, uh, we're going to have reminders constantly, external reminders coming to us and, and other things that are going to constantly keep reminding us that it's not the same and if you got to do something better or change, you're going to have to do it if you like it or not. And, and that's going to be hard for some people to, to get their hands or their heads around. Yep. Yeah, and there, that is another kind of concept that we'll use in counseling called cope ahead. So we kind yeah. of take what's going on with us right now we anticipate what's going to happen next week, next month, in all the different domains of our lives, and then we come up with a plan to skillfully cope ahead with that dilemma, with that situation, so that we're not left, you know, kind of behind the, behind the curve, but we're actually in front of it. And we're saying, we know this is going to be a stressful thing. We know this is going to be a change, and we're going to intentionally um, figure out how to deal with it now so that we can deal with it more effectively when we're facing it in the days and weeks ahead. I want to ask you about this working remotely thing, too, because I've seen a couple of stories on that where uh, some people were thinking, okay, i got to work at home, i got more time, all right, my calendar won't be the same, and they turn around with all the Zoom meetings and even the virtual happy hours, and they find that their calendars are filled up again. <laughs> they don't want to tell anybody no. So this is really, and some companies are going to say, hey, you know, we kind of like this idea. We can have less floor space so people can work at home. That is an entirely different way of, co- of, of working and coping that, that people are going to have to uh, figure out how it works best for them then. Absolutely. And I've seen, um, with my coworkers, I'm fortunate enough to work from home and do, um, we used Microsoft Teams, and so we're, we're on, I'm on calls pretty much all day, every day. And what we've decided, or what we've been talking about as our organization is we have to shorten some of our meetings, so we have little breaks in between our meetings. We have to, we really like the face-to-face meetings where you can actually see the person as well as hear their voice. We've also mm-hmm. said that we, but yet we still miss the in-person. And a lot of our company, I work at the Mental Health Center of Denver, and it's a large organization. A lot of our staff still have to work in person because they're in residential services or pharmacy or they're first responders or essential employees, rather, with the police department as co-responders, mental health therapists, or the walk-in center or crisis services. So we still have a lot of people that, fortunately, they're able to still take the necessary precautions and work with the people we serve in person. 
And with that being said, there's the vast majority of us that are able to work from home, and telehealth has been a, a, a great, great thing. And you're right, we're going to have to continue to adapt to this, and we're going to have to continue to not become just as busy and more busy, perhaps, than we originally were because these meetings can nonstop happen throughout the entire day. So mm -hmm. we have to be mindful, again, of how we adapt to this change, these changes. Uh, you mentioned telehealth and that kind of thing. Is there a, a crisis number that uh, you could share that people could call in case they're having an issue, especially related to this, that they may be able to talk to somebody or get a referral? Absolutely. So there, fortunately for Coloradoans, we have an, a statewide crisis service um, kind of array of services. And the way that you can get in touch with these services, they're called uh, CCC Crisis, Colorado Crisis Connection. The way you can get in touch with them is 1-844-493-TALK. So 1-844-493-TALK, and TALK is 8255. Right. Or, or you can text TALK, mm -hmm. T-A-L-K, to 38255. That's text TALK. Three eight two five five, and that's that is, and that's any self-defined crisis that a person finds themselves in. All they have to do is contact that that number, and then they will help route you to what you need, whether that's a walk-in center that's near their house, or whether that's access to mental health services on a more ongoing basis, or if they need a respite bed, or if they need to go into residential or if they need to, um, yeah, get to a hospital. So they are uh, prepared, and that's 24-7. They're able to provide those services. Okay, so to make sure I have it right, it's 1-844-493-TALK, and that's 8255. 8255, yes. Okay, okay. A sidebar note, um, they've been seeing an increase. Uh, some of the governments have been reporting an increase in um, – in hate crimes, uh, especially those uh, directed toward the Asian community for this COVID stuff. Are, are, are people needing to have somebody to blame? And how do they manage that if it pops into their head, this is not my fault and I shouldn't have it, and it's somebody else's fault and they need to do whatever? How do they manage that? Yeah, I think sometimes that that tendency to want is an albeit not a healthy one and not Instead of blaming other people uh, and other subgroups of people, <laughs> we we rather we need to just say, how can I tolerate my distress in a more skillful way? So how can yeah. I manage my emotions? How can I manage um, relationships effectively? How can I tolerate distress effectively? How can I, there's another concept in counseling called radical acceptance uh, that comes from a treatment model called dialectical behavioral therapy. And the idea of radical acceptance is I don't have to like my reality per se right now, but I do have to embrace it, that it is my reality, and I have to do that skillfully. And and if I do that, then I, it alleviates a lot of that. Well, this shouldn't be, and why did these people do this to us, and why am I in this situation? It's their fault. So it helps you kind of get out of that mentality of looking for someone to blame, and it helps you yeah. kind of move forward with a much more adaptive way of dealing with the situation. It's like, no, I'm going to accept that this is our reality, and I'm going to do everything I can to help my family, to help myself, to help my community move through this. And so, so yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, that's a definite.
uh, that to get a, to become a runaway thing, and especially we don't want it to translate into translate from an attitude and thoughts and words to actions, because then people obviously yeah. are really getting hurt. And whether whether that's directed outward towards that particular group of people that I'm targeting, or whether I'm just angry and I take it out on my family. And so we yeah. we, we we are concerned about domestic violence. There are domestic violence hotlines that people need to get in touch with if they need it. There's um, all kinds of uh, help out there, and obviously call 911 if ever if ever uh, um, resource for someone who's treated. But yeah, so that's yeah, yeah, we, we don't want that anger to to be translated into behavior for sure. Yeah, we've been seeing a uh, uh, at least we've been it's been reported to us that there are. In, increases in uh, domestic violence. I guess people around each other a lot more than what they they normally are and don't have the normal outlets, and and that's becoming an added problem, a complicated problem as well. Yeah, that is, and that's so. Yeah, any way that we can make sure that people have the supports and the resources so that they don't become a victim of of domestic violence, and then of course the people that are potential perpetrators. We want to we want to connect with them and you know prior to them acting on that anger and so certainly through any kinds of therapy like that that crisis line that I gave you that would be a perfect yeah. place for someone like that to call and say hey I am struggling right now and I'm concerned about what I could do <clears throat> you know I could hurt myself or I could hurt my family or I could lash out to someone on the streets because of you know the few cars that are on the road I still have road rage and I'm going to take it out on somebody so we definitely definitely don't want that to happen. And that crisis line that I gave Mr. Steve Fisher, a licensed professional counselor with the Mental Health Center of Denver. Thank you. Thank you oh so much for making a house call, so to speak, to help us keep mentally and emotionally healthy during these trying times. Now, should you find yourself needing support or assistance, again, the number to call is 1-844-493-TALK. That's 1-844-493-8255 and someone will be there to help you to cope. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay safe, stay safe, stay safe. Keep on your game, and we deeply appreciate you as well sharing a few moments of your weekend with us.